Well, Hope Brooklyn, it is so good to be with you today. And I am incredibly grateful for uh, Pastor Russell asking me to speak this weekend. Uh, it is just such a privilege. And just seeing some of the names of the other people who are speaking, great friends of mine, but also amazing, amazing communicators. So I just feel honored to join those ranks. Uh, if you didn't see my update earlier this week, my name is Brad Williams, and I'm the pastor of B4 Church out in Portland, Oregon. Uh, but I have tons of familiarity with you guys. Actually, uh, about 15 years ago, I planted a church in Brooklyn Heights. And then uh, for the past seven years, I've been working with church planters in the city and have been to your church a few times. So uh, it's a beautiful congregation. You guys are amazing community of faith. I love what you're doing. And, uh, and so good to just be a part of this right now. Now, um, today we're going to be in the book of Acts in, in this series on the first love. And we're going to be talking actually about enemy love as we talk about first love. Um, but I want you to open up your Bible to Acts chapter 9, if you have that with you, if it's on a device or something like that. Um, and as you're doing that, I want to explain a few things before we actually dive into the text today. Um, th there are certain times when we approach a biblical narrative that the application for our lives is painstakingly clear. Uh, the demonstration of what we're watching, it's so specific. The events are so prescriptive almost for us that they don't need much explanation. Um, the text that we're going to get in today is one of those texts. In fact, uh, my, my joke for you right now is that you barely need me once you read this story, with one exception, and it's this. There are times that no matter the simplicity or the clarity of what's being presented, that the application is so challenging and so counterintuitive that we will choose willfully to ignore it or to explain it away. We'll skip it. We'll talk about the reasons it can't actually be applied the way we, we see it being applied. We'll make excuses for it. And yet this is what I truly believe. When we choose to ignore the painstakingly clear points of application, we're also choosing to step off of and away from the way of Jesus that's being laid out in front of us. I think it's that simple. When it's this clear and we choose to ignore it, we are choosing to ignore the way that Jesus is bringing us. Like, let me, let me say it this way, and I think this is a good way for us to think about this text today. In order for you and I to experience the joy and the life and the meaning that is found in the person of Jesus, we have to allow Jesus to address the incongruence between his way and our way. We have to allow him to say those things to us. Um, there, there are basic bottom line behaviors and values that Jesus presents to us through his word that are so fundamentally opposed to how human beings operate in the natural that no matter how clear they come across in the scriptures, we will choose to ignore them and consequently him unless our hearts are touched by the spirit of God. So with that, I just want to let you know that I have prayed for you. I've prayed for you as a church. I've prayed for you as you watch this, that you would allow this text to expose those places in your life that, that can't be ignored, that need to be changed, and that you would respond with a willingness to, to follow Jesus into these things. Now, um, just to offer some context of this text, let me give you some background. This is in the book of Acts where there's an individual named Saul who has been, uh, he has been an antagonist against the church. He is he is uh, filled with animosity towards Christians. And there's this confrontation between he and Jesus. He's got letters of extradition that he's received from Jewish leaders. He's taking them to a city called Damascus. And he's willing to arrest and haul away, potentially beat and even kill the Christians that he finds in this place. But he has this confrontation with Jesus. Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. And in this encounter, he's left to face the reality of a resurrected Jesus. And so it confronts everything in his thinking, everything in his understanding. 
And in his blindness, Jesus instructs him to go to a house, a random house in the city of Damascus. We pick up the rest of the story beginning in verse 10. And it says this, Acts chapter 9, verse 10 says, There was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Let me just pause here for a moment. And I want you to notice the difference between Ananias and Saul, this other individual I just described. Um, when Jesus, right before this interaction, encountered Saul and spoke to him, Saul's response to him was, who are you? Now, when Jesus speaks to Ananias, he doesn't ask who he is. He just says, here I am. Um, I believe that reveals something regarding the anatomy of a true disciple of Jesus. When the Lord speaks, his response is almost like a young soldier who's, who's reporting for duty. He says, here I am, I'm, I'm available. He's listening, he's leaning in to hear. He's essentially saying this, what do you have for me? He recognizes the voice of Jesus and then he reports for duty. Uh, one day last week, I was just mulling over this text and I opened up my journal and I was thinking about this. And so I wrote at the top page of my journal, I just said, here I am, Lord just wrote those words, those four simple words. And then I spent some time just praying and asking the Lord to examine my own life. I started questioning, Lord, is this how you see me? Am I the kind of person that when you speak to me, I respond with a willingness to listen? I lean in to hear. I say, what do you have for me? Am I that kind of person? I was just evaluating my own heart, processing that. And then as I was reflecting, I came to a very specific place of wondering if the reason that the Lord came to Ananias was because he had a track record, a history of being a person that responded this way. In other words, was his heart so turned toward Jesus that Jesus couldn't help but turn towards him? See, I believe these are the kind of men and women that Jesus is looking for. People who will stand and say, what do you have for me? What are my instructions? Where do you want me to go? So, so I love that part of the story. I love this willingness on Ananias' part. I love what it reveals about his character. I love what it shows us about what it means to be a disciple. But then I also love what happens next. And I want you to see this with me. Verse 11, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and then come and in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So just to backtrack for a moment, Ananias hears the voice of God. He says, here I am. And then Jesus says, well, here you go. Here are your instructions. He even, he says, I've paved the way for you. I've even told this guy that you're going to be coming to see him. Except there's a problem. Ananias knows who Saul is. And in this moment, we see something that happens over and over again in the lives of so many people who desire the promises of Jesus, but they struggle with the causes of Jesus. Ananias knows who Saul is. I hear you, Lord. I'm here for you, Lord. And then he hears the instructions and it's like the record needle scratches. Everything comes to a halt. And I want you to listen to what he says in verse 13. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. I love this. Uh, in fact, I always love it when people feel the need to inform Jesus on details that Jesus seems to have uh, forgotten at some point or another, like as if Jesus missed the detail, right? So, so he's informing Jesus. I've heard about this person. Do you know who he is? These are some things about him. 
But, but, he, but he's doing more than just informing him. In actuality, when he says this, he's actually questioning Jesus. He's questioning, Jesus, are you sure about this? I know who he is. Are you sure this is what you want? And the truth is, we do the exact same thing all the time. When we inform Jesus and we explain the complexity of whatever it is he's asking us to do, we aren't simply informing him, we're actually questioning him. When we say, Jesus, do you understand what that means? Do you understand the implications? Do you understand the outcome of what that would, like when we do that with him, what we're saying is, Jesus, are you sure? I don't think I want to do that. I don't think I can do that. That's what's happening in this text. And that's what happens every year for, for people that follow Jesus is what happens every month. It happens for some people every single week. We get instructions. The instructions are clear, but the instructions are complicated. The instructions have complex implications that are incongruent with how we feel in the moment. We don't want to do it. In fact, my guess is that a bunch of us watching right now, if you're, if you're participating in this, Right now, you're being prompted by Jesus to move in a particular direction, to reach out to a person, to engage in a mission, to, to give something sacrificially. There's something that Jesus is prompting you towards, but somewhere between the prompting that you have received, the prompting of the Holy Spirit, and the execution on those instructions, you have someplace along this road talked sense into Jesus. Like, just like Ananias, you said, hey, Jesus, there are implications of this maybe you even went to the wisdom literature. You said, Jesus, let me share with you some Proverbs that talk about moderation and being, being prudent. Uh, I don't know what you've done, but the reality is we do things like this to escape obedience. And, and here's what I've discovered. The reason we do that is that something in the instructions violates our sensibilities about how life is supposed to work. So let's take Ananias. Ananias is a part of my, a minority population who is under very specific, acute persecution in this moment. That persecution is being spearheaded by one specific person. And logic would tell you that if you are leading the faith equivalent of a bootstrapped entrepreneurial startup, and there's one individual who's trying to take you down, there's one person who poses the greatest threat, that you would do everything in your power to avoid that person. Because survival, in this case, survival of the faithful is paramount, right? Survival of your faith for this movement that's, that's called the Jesus way, it is on the line. So, so when Jesus tells him to go to Saul, he, Jesus seems to be indicating to him, he, he must be questioning this and thinking this, Jesus must be saying that he's actually more interested in Saul's reconciliation than he is with Ananias' safety. And so he thinks to himself, how can this be? He represents everything that we're not. He represents, he, he's a threat to our very existence. In, in fact, you can almost hear him saying, it's hard enough for me to love my neighbor. And now you expect me to actually go towards this guy? Wait, that's exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? And it's not just here. See, there's a word that we use for people who are a threat against us, for people who are a threat to our existence, people who are against our values, people who are against our people, if you will. And that word is the word enemy. That's what we call them. And in fact, one of the best ways for you and I to identify who our, our enemies are is for us to look at our emotions. 
Who is it that makes you angry? Who is it that, that stirs up frustration? What group is it that you seem to be defensive about? Did, is there a person or people that just tend to make you uncomfortable? Are there conversations that sort of spin you out of control? You start asking those sorts of questions. And at the bottom of those, somewhere in those, you start to discover who is this person? Who are these people that are my enemies? And what I want you to see is what Jesus says about these enemies. Luke chapter 6, Luke uh, wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He said this in verse 27 of Luke 6. He said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. And then a few verses later, just in case you aren't clear on what Jesus is saying, he says this, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is this, the contrast between you, between my followers and everyone else in the world is that you love like no one loves. He says this, if you love, if, if your love, if your goodness, if your generosity is only extended to those reciprocate, well, that's how everybody loves. That's how everyone operates in the natural. And what Jesus is calling us toward is what's called the supernatural, the beyond natural. And I really believe that one of the most supernatural things that you and I will ever do may be choosing to love someone who is not like you, someone who you might even consider an enemy. It may be embracing somebody who's different, somebody who's opposed. It may be accepting someone who is the contrast of you. By the way, um, this is probably the point where many of you are tempted to inform Jesus or at least start to ask the question, well, what about this person? What about that person? What about this group or that group? And this is where I really believe we need like a bobblehead doll version of Jesus who every time we ask the what about question, he just continues to nod and say, yes, 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 all of them. Supernatural, beyond the natural. In fact, I love something that my friend Albert Tate said uh, just two weeks ago. He's the pastor of Fellowship Monrovia. And, and, and he said this, he said, anything that makes you feel better about loving your neighbor less is probably godless. By the way, um, I don't know anyone that would define love as simply putting up with or tolerating people. Love is always us going to another. It's us making the first move. It's us taking the first step. It's going to them. That is what love looks like. And I just want to admit and acknowledge the reality that some of us have participated in church cultures that told us to avoid certain groups of others for fear of corruption. Some of us have participated in church cultures that permitted some sort of polite but quiet hatred of others. Some of us have even confused the winds of politics in this country with the breath of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And let me just tell you that what Jesus is looking for is people of a different culture. In fact, this, 
passage in Luke 6 gives us a clue as to how we actually enter into this. He actually shows us, well, this is how you do it. This is, this is what it looks like. It gets us back to Acts chapter 9, in fact. Jesus ends this whole thing about, about being generous and being loving and being kind towards your enemy by calling us to be merciful, even as your Father in heaven is merciful. Even as your Father, right? What he's doing here is he's pointing to one of the most basic fundamental principles of what it means to be human. See, we humans, we learn by example. That, that's true of everyone everywhere. That's true of everybody in history. Um, if you ask any aspiring do-it-yourself or what their favorite website is, they're going to probably tell you it's YouTube. And I'll tell you why. I don't know how many times I've set out to do something and I've gotten the instructions and I begin to read them and it's just sort of a jumbled mess in my brain. I go and watch a video of somebody do it and then somehow I am released. I have the ability to then do what I saw them do. Jesus does that right here. He says, do you see your father? Do you see how this is done? Do you see the mercy that he's extended to you? That is how you do this. And that leads to a principle. Seeing as God sees will result in you loving as God loves. If you can start to see people the way that God sees people, then you will begin to love people the way that God loves people. And let me just also say this. If you're not loving like he loves, then odds are that you aren't seeing as he sees. You have cloudy vision. So let me go back to the text in Acts. Ananias Box, he hears Saul who, basically, he's asking this question, you really want me to go to this person? You know who this is, right? And then we read this, verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So what does Jesus do here? Ananias sees a murderous, threat-breathing enemy of Christianity. But what does Jesus see? Jesus sees a chosen instrument. Jesus sees someone who will carry his name to the Gentiles. Jesus sees someone who will carry his name into the court of kings. Jesus sees somebody who will even suffer for his name. Do you realize how inconceivable this is in, in, in Ananias' view? Gentiles. Well, no self-respecting Jew would ever go to the Gentiles. That, that's first of all. Secondly, kings. No one like Saul is ever going to have the opportunity to stand before kings. That seems absolutely impossible. And then to suffer for you, he's actually the one that other Christians are suffering at the hands of because they have proclaimed your name. Ananias hearing this would have been dumbfounded. And yet the reality is that every single one of those would become a truth in Saul's life. And then there's this cool thing that takes place. Ananias hears this, but then he sees as God sees. And as a result of that, he loves as God loves. Check this out. Verse 17, it says, So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, a form of embrace of this enemy, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. The question is this, can you and I see as God sees? Can we see those who are rumored to be dangerous? Maybe those who even are dangerous, those who are a threat, can we see them as God sees them? 
Can we see them with a future that is drenched in God's desire for their life? Can we see that? Ananias, he goes to Saul and he's only armed with a vision for Saul's life that God has for him. He has no idea what's going to happen next. This is so challenging because we live in a Christian reality today that has been perverted by our cultural obsession with safety and the avoidance of pain. And so because of that, most Christians today, most Christians in the West, we don't have a theology for, for suffering, nor we do have the capacity to risk anything for Jesus. So, so a scene like this, something taking place like this, it's nearly impossible because we look at a situation like this and we say, well, we don't have control. There's this uncertainty about this. Let me be clear. It is never balanced for disciples who hear Jesus say, go. They almost always have a better sense of what God is going to do in the person they're going to's life than they do their own. God may be very specific and say, I want you to go here and I want you to do this for this person. And you may go. And when you go, most often you have no idea what the outcome will be for yourself. God is unbelievably fuzzy with the details because he's looking for you to join him in his mission. And yet in the middle of this, in the middle of these moments is where true discipleship presses us to change the way we think and see. I love what um, Dr. Willie Jennings says about this. He says, the truth we know of a person or people must move to the background and what we know of God's desire for them must move to the foreground. The danger we imagine inscribed on their bodies must be read against the delight we know God takes in their life. That same delight covers us. Now, that last part's key. That same delight, that same perspective is what God has of us. Here's what that reveals. Loving our enemies isn't just about me seeing others as God sees them. It's as much about me seeing me as God has seen me, which is the beauty of the gospel. See, see the gospel tells a story about my life, and that is the, a, a story that I need to be constantly reminded of. The gospel says that I was estranged from God. The gospel even says that I was an enemy of God. But the gospel also says, according to Romans 5, that even when I was his enemy, I was loved and I was reconciled back to him. While I was still an enemy, he was drawing me back and reconciling me. By the way, that is why Jesus is my first love, because he loved me like that. So, so let me explain the relationship between loving your enemy and your understanding of how you are loved as, as, as that relates to the enemies around you, how crucial this is. You cannot do that. You cannot love your enemy the way you are called to love your enemy unless you have experienced this. And if you haven't experienced it, then you actually haven't experienced the gospel. See, when you say yes to the gospel, you accept the reality that you have been extended radical and undeserved mercy. You are an enemy who is loved. But if you ever think that you earned that grace, if you ever think that you earned that favor, then not only have you not truly experienced the gospel, you're most likely become a person who will demand that others earn your grace as well. If you've earned it, you'll make them earn it. I mean, let me say it this way. If you, if you think you've deserved what you have in Christ, you're actually not a Christian. You're just religious. And if you're just religious, well, 
then it's easy to walk in self-righteousness. It's, it's easy to walk in judgment of others. That's what makes the gospel so beautiful. That's what makes the gospel so important because there's nothing like it. The gospel says, I was loved when I was an enemy, which means I can love my enemy. When you see as God sees, you will love as God loves. So let me ask you this question. Who makes your blood boil? Who's that group? Who are those people that stir your emotions? Who is it that makes you get defensive? Who is it that, that hijacks your day? The people you've determined to be dangerous. The ones that are so wrong. I want you to answer that question. And now I want you to love them. To move towards them. And every time you struggle with that, I want you to remind yourself of how Jesus, our first love, first loved us. Let me pray for you. Lord, I'm so thankful for the grace that you have extended to us. I thank you for the reminder that we ourselves are broken individuals who were at odds with you, maybe even still at odds with you. And even when we are at odds with you, you love us unconditionally. You reconcile us back to yourself. Lord, I truly believe that in this day and age, we don't need another group of people proclaiming that they're right. We need another group of people. We need a group of people who will love unconditionally those who are opposed to them to show them who you are and what you're all about. So Lord, I pray for Hope Brooklyn. I pray for everyone watching this. I pray that every place they go, every place they are, they would be a light of your love, that they would be an expression of your grace and that they would deliver your favor to everyone they come in contact with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you all again for letting me be with you. And I'm hoping that sometime in the very near future, I can actually visit you in person and we can see each other and, uh, and hang out together. So have an amazing rest of your day. Thank you again. We'll see you soon.